Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you're a speaking God, that wherever we are in the world, you're a God who speaks, that whatever our situation or circumstances, whatever our stage in life, whatever uh, battles or opportunities we have, you are at work in us. And we thank you that the book of Acts reminds us that you're a God who gets your hands dirty, who gets involved in all the ins and outs of life. And we pray that as we work through this book over the next few days, we would have a a, a greater understanding, a bigger uh, picture of who you are and what you've done for us, that we might go from here rejoicing and praising your name. For your glory's sake. Amen. For those who just come in there, two booklets hopefully there's one black and white which is an outline of all the talks and then there's a a color one which has got various maps and charts and diagrams and things that um, I'll be referring to as we go through and it's the sort of thing to take away and and, uh, sort of read and uh, inwardly digest uh, in the days and weeks ahead but hopefully it'll be a resource for you um, long after we've uh, finished our week here. But uh, an elderly woman had just returned uh, home from an evening at church uh, when she was startled to find a burglar in her home. And this burglar was methodically making his way through her belongings. And so she yelled out the first words that came to mind, Stop! Acts (laughs) 2.38! Which uh, obviously perhaps is not completely on the tip of everybody's tongue, which says this, Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ so that your sins may be forgiven. The intruder stopped in his tracks. The woman calmly called the police, and when they arrived and explained what had happened, uh, they took the man into custody. And as the officer was cuffing the man to take him in, he asked the burglar, Why did you just stand there? After all, this lady just mentioned a Bible verse to you. Bible, said the the burglar. I thought she said that she had an axe and two (laughs) thirty-eights. Now, of course, (laughs) you never quite know when some Bible knowledge will come in handy, obviously. Uh, But I'm not sure that that's exactly what Luke had in mind as he was writing his book. Um, And it is an epic book. And it has vast scope and huge purpose. And the big question is actually, what was his purpose? What did he have in mind as he wrote this book? What did he think he was doing? You see, we come to uh, the book of Acts with all kinds of uh, questions and uh, issues and uh, concerns. And maybe uh, some people are feeling, ah, there's bound to be a few sort of controversial issues we're going to tackle and looking forward to that and all kinds of things. Uh, And indeed, we will have to talk about some of those things. But uh, they're not always completely aligned to what Luke thought he was doing as he wrote this book. Uh, But hopefully by the end, you'll have a very clear idea of what he thought he was doing. But I think there are a number of frustrations with the book of Acts, because it's actually hard to know what it is when you start trying to analyze it. Um, and, And there are 101 different questions we might have of this book, and the first is, what, what should it be called? What is this thing? Is it right to be called the Acts of the apostle, uh, Apostles? 
Or is that a misnomer? Is that a, a, a wrong name? Because after all, whose acts do we study in this book? For instance, after Acts 15, which is when the Council of Jerusalem happens, a very important moment in the history of, of Christianity, after Acts 15, we hear nothing of Peter, not once. Why do we focus so much on Saul, or Paul, as he would become known? Uh, he starts getting mentioned in Acts 6 and 7. Uh, he wasn't a member of the original 12. And then we focus so much on him from about chapter 9 onwards, when we read of his conversion. But then the end of the book seems like a bit of an anticlimax. I don't know whether you thought about it like that, but actually the end of the book has him just, in Rome, living in a house, preaching. End of book. Now we know, pretty sure, that uh, Saul, Paul, was martyred in Rome. Why doesn't Luke end with that as a sort of, you know, sort of climactic sacrifice at the end of his ministry is like Stephen looks up into heaven and sees the Lord on his throne and, and a sort of glorious martyrdom. Why don't we end with that? It's rather a sort of damp squib at the end. And then what about all the others? Philip gets mentioned a few times. He does one or two cool things. Uh, but uh, what about him after Acts 8? And what of that Ethiopian civil servant who goes home and we never hear of him again? But then what about the other 12, the other disciples? What about Bartholomew, Matthew, Andrew, Thomas, and all these? These guys are mentioned just once in one verse in chapter 1. Acts 1 verse 13. And what about the women who arguably were more devoted to Jesus than the men in the gospel accounts? What were they up to? What became of them? Do You see, actually, there are a whole load of questions about individuals that we hear about in the gospels and just have this little dab mention at the beginning that we know nothing about. Why is it called Acts of the Apostles when actually, arguably, it's probably Acts of two and a half? Some people suggest it's the Acts of the Spirit, and certainly we'll see that the Holy Spirit is crucial to understanding what goes on in the story and all kinds of things happen as a result of his work. But actually, as we will see, uh, he is explicitly mentioned in only a number of key passages. There's sort of clusters of uh, verses about the Spirit that happened at various key points. And then the rest of the time, he's not really mentioned. So is that an appropriate title? Well, perhaps, perhaps not. And then, you know, the whole question of the Spirit is a key one, isn't it? Because what, um, what he did in the time of Acts begs all kinds of questions about what he's doing now. Can we expect the sorts of things that happened in Acts to happen today? And then there are the whole questions about life in the early church. I mean, you know, think of all the fascinating things we'd love to know about what it was really like in those first months and years of the church as it spread to brand new pioneering situations. What was it really like and how did they go about choosing leaders and setting uh, sort of structures in place and you know, sorting out training of home group leaders or whatever it might be? All kinds of questions we'd love to know. What were they like? How were they led? And actually we only hear about a number of churches when we know that in this whole region there were hundreds. So we hear about Jerusalem and Antioch. Now, this is interesting, isn't it? Because actually, if you think about it, the churches in Jerusalem and Antioch were huge. Very, very quickly, the Jerusalem church grew into the thousands to the size of all souls and bigger within just a matter of weeks. 
We often think of the churches in Acts as just tiny little sort of huddled groups in a home somewhere, um, sort of eking out an existence, whereas actually, well, in Antioch as well, we're talking of hundreds. Where did they meet and how did they operate? Did they ever get together centrally? So in case, if that's the case, then how or where? We know that, for instance, Paul rented lecture rooms. Did they have their sort of church gatherings in those places? And what was his church planting strategy? I mean, all kinds of questions. I mean, I've just thrown out some of the biggies. All kinds of questions that actually we don't really have answers to. And yet Acts touches on a lot of things. Now, there's a big, important Bible principle here. If the Bible or a particular Bible book doesn't answer the questions we have for it, then it's probably because we're asking it the wrong questions. And therefore, we need to try and work out what questions does Luke think he's answering. And once we've established that, I think we'll see that the whole book suddenly slots into place like a jigsaw puzzle. And it's a vital principle of handling, Bible, uh, principle of handling the Bible. And the text, the book, gives us the vital sort of cues and clues. Now, um, you know, I think uh, most of the clues come in the sorts of details uh, as the text goes along. And we normally skirt over these things because we don't think they're that important. We want to get to the miracle or whatever it is. But actually, I think we need to do something a bit like going back to primary school. And there's Luke. Uh, that's uh, a very good likeness, I gather. Um, and I think we need to think of Luke as our teacher. It's a bit like primary school, because in primary school, you have one teacher who teaches you lots of different things. So you have the same teacher all day, all right? And basically, what we need to be thinking about as we read the book of Acts are three different areas. RE, or theology, history, and geography. All three are integral to his message. We have to be alert. So at each point, we need to ask uh, along the journey, where are we? So that's why there are maps in your, in your colored booklet, because actually where we are has huge gospel theological significance. Uh, someone uh, described Luke as writing geographic theology. He is profoundly interested in geography because it is about the gospel going wide. And so in practice, actually what we need to do is to read the book of Acts with three books open in front of us. The first is his first book, the Gospel, Luke's Gospel. And then the second is the Old Testament, because you'll find that he quotes the Old Testament hundreds of times. And in fact, in your color booklets, I've got a list of all the times that Luke quotes the Old Testament and where to find them. And the third thing you need is an atlas. Now... Um, I've called this series on the book of Acts, How God's Gospel Went Global. And as I've gone through it and been trying to sort of think of a sort of theme that uh, covers the whole book, this occurred to me as the one that seems to tie as many of these things together as possible. Because basically, God's gospel is the theology, the good news of Jesus. How it went global is the history. So Luke is telling us what stages in that process occurred. And global is the geography. So that's why we need all three elements, how God's gospel, the theology, went, the history, global, the geography. Now, when you stop to think about this and to think about what happened, it just blows your mind. Their hero had been tortured and executed as less than a common criminal 
The first leaders were a ragtag bunch, mainly uneducated peasants from a remote corner of a Roman province that didn't really ma matter very much to the grand scheme of things. A group of people who had spent most of their time in recent weeks in hiding. What changed them? And more to the point, what prevented this from simply being a Jewish sect with a few nutty adherents? The sorts of things you would find in California. Just a little group of people who believe something weird. What changed them? What happened? Because without that change, we wouldn't be here, as Alex said earlier. It's as simple as that. We wouldn't be here. In Kefen Lee. So what happened? Well, God's king made his preparations. And this is what we find in, in Acts chapter 1. Verse 1, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all the things that Jesus began to do and to teach. Well, we actually don't know much about Theophilus. He may have been a guy, a bloke called Theophilus, or it could be a pseudonym. Theophilus just means lover of God in Greek. So it could be just uh, an important person who, for whatever reason, needed to keep his name quiet. Who knows? Or it could be just any person who loves God. Uh, it doesn't really matter. The important thing is that Luke ties this in to his first book. And in the first book, Jesus began to do and teach things. Well, what did he begin to do? Well, in Luke's gospel, uh, this is a sort of summary of Luke's gospel. We find uh, Jesus' birth narratives that are included, unlike, for instance, Mark or John. Uh, and basically, the book is a journey that Jesus makes. Jesus makes this journey. And it's a journey from a remarkably early stage in the book. In Luke 9... Uh, we find this, as, they, as the time approached for Jesus to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. So in Luke 9, Jesus knows where he's going. He's going to Jerusalem. And the most poignant thing about that is he knows exactly what's going to happen to him. I mean, Luke's uh, language there is strong. He set resolutely out. He set his face for Jerusalem. This is where I'm going. He set his face straight into the fire. But high in uh, the mind of Luke, and of course in Jesus, is the climax of Luke's gospel is not even the cross or even the resurrection, but the ascension, where Jesus goes up to heaven and sits at the right hand of God. His work is done, and he is there in heaven, Lord, King. That's what he did. And so you'll notice a pattern. And basically, in Luke's gospel, you've got to be aware of the geography as well. But all the time, it's this drivenness to the cross and then to heaven. So what did he, that's what he did. What did he teach? Well, you can see he taught many things. But actually, I think you could sum up a lot of what Jesus is seen to teach in, in the book of Luke as teaching about the kingdom of God. And that phrase comes over 30 times in Luke's gospel. And it includes how to enter the kingdom through faith and what was necessary to make that entry available, the cross, and all kinds of things related to how you live in the kingdom. Not quite as much as Matthew, for instance, teaches about kingdom living, but it's certainly there in Luke. And in Matthew, you have the Sermon on the Mount. In Luke, you have an equivalent, the Sermon on the Plain, covering similar issues. But in many ways, what Jesus was doing was teaching about the kingdom in preparation for what was to come. And that's what we find in the book of Acts. It picks up immediately what 
Jesus was going to do in the book of Acts. So if you look at Acts 1, they're told to wait in Jerusalem. Ah, geography. What happened to Jerusalem? Jerusalem is the headquarters of the enemy, the people who killed him. But Jesus says, no, wait here. Wait here. Why? Well, verse 5, you will have the promised gift. Now, it's interesting, way back in Luke 3, way back in Luke's gospel, in chapter 3, uh, John the Baptist has said that the Holy Spirit was going to come. He was going to baptize with water, but a one coming after him were baptized with the Spirit. Well, we're still waiting. Do you see that in Luke's gospel, we haven't had a, a, a fulfillment of that promise. We're still waiting. And in Acts 1, we're still waiting. And Jesus picks up the promise again and says, we will, this, will, this promise gift will come. But why will it come, this gift? Well, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes so that and you will be my witnesses. Witnesses of the kingdom. A witness is someone who does all kinds of different things, but at the very basis is someone who sees things and reports what is seen. What you see, you bear witness to. Okay? It involves seeing and telling. But a journey beckons, and we see that in verse 8. But uh, we'll come back to that in a moment. But before that journey can begin, the Lord will go. And he ascends into heaven. I mean, it's an extraordinary moment, isn't it? I mean, you know, after all, I mean, talk about the emotional roller coaster these guys have been on. You know, they, they've, they've spent three years, most of them, with, with Jesus, and they've grown to love him deeply, and in fact, grown to utterly depend on him for everything. And then they see him executed, and it's game over. You remember the two at the end of Luke, in Luke 24, leaving Jerusalem. Very significant geography. They're leaving Jerusalem in Luke 24, and what, uh, when Jesus in disguise comes up to them and says, what are you doing? They say, we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. In other words, we don't think that anymore. It's all over. We're leaving. Leaving Jerusalem. And Jesus shows himself and they're overwhelmed. He's alive. What do they do? They go back to Jerusalem to tell the others. So they're the others waiting in Jerusalem. He's come back to them and he spent 40 days with them. And it's just been amazing. Can you, can you imagine how wonderful that, those 40 days must have been? And then suddenly now he's gone again. The angels have to say, look, men of Galilee, why, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven, it's okay. He will come back. The same way you've seen him go into heaven, this time this will be glorious. So it's the old adage, what goes up must come down. He's coming back. Now, this is integral to absolutely everything, and yet, for most of us, my guess, it is not integral to the way we think of the world. We do not think of the world as the place that Jesus rules over and to which he will return. As we walk around, as you walk down Oxford Street and Regent Street, getting on the tube at Oxford Circus, do you recognize that all of this belongs to him? 
and that one day he's coming back for it. Do you think of that as you walk down the street? It belongs to him. He's coming back. Or does that seem some sort of rather remote, rather vague, far-off notion that's just a pipe dream? No, he's coming back because it's his. And actually that principle, that uh, conviction dominates everything that happens in the book of Acts. That's what spurs everybody on because they know he's coming back. But what do they have to do in the meantime? Yes, he's coming back. They don't know when. And in fact, one of the big questions about, for the early church was, was this question of times and dates. And indeed, the disciples ask Jesus about that in these verses. And Jesus says, look, it's not for you to know the times and dates, but it will happen. It's not when, it's not whether it'll happen, but when it'll happen. We don't know, but it will happen. So what do we do in the meantime? Well, what do the apostles do? Well, God's kingdom preparations are for God's kingdom witnesses to get to work. Now, the interesting thing is, um, this raises one or two questions for the early guys, because, of course, one of their number was a key cause to Jesus' death. Judas. I wonder if someone could just see if they can talk to what's going on outside. I don't know whether it's... Thanks, Anna. Um, <clears throat> uh, but the interesting thing is that the, the, the Peter, as the sort of chief apostle, has to help the uh, uh, early leaders and, and early church to understand that actually even Judas was part of the plan, hard though that is to try and get our heads round. And uh, so Peter talks about, uh, verses 12 onwards, about how um, Jesus knew about Judas and that... Um, Actually, it was all mysteriously part of the plan, which is why we get a couple of psalms quoted, Psalm 65 and 109. Uh, Basically, it's saying that this is all part of the plan. Jesus wasn't caught out by this. It's not a surprise to him. Now, there is mystery here. And we get get our knickers in a twist. If we start trying to play off human responsibility against divine plan and sovereignty... Judas knew what he was doing. More than that, Judas wanted to do what he did. And what is interesting, as you see in the narrative in the Gospels, is that on one or two occasions, Jesus actually makes it quite clear to Judas that he knows what's about to happen, almost as a chance for him to duck out of it. It's almost as if saying, look, you don't have to do this. He actually says, one of you will betray me. He doesn't say who, and all the disciples are saying, it's not me, it's not who. Judas knows exactly who it is. And the whole business about the one uh, who shares this bread into this cup, whose cup I dip it. It's saying, I know about you. You don't have to do this, but Judas did. And yet the mystery is that at the same time, that was part of God's purpose. We mustn't play them off against each other. And of course, the place where that supremely happens, and we'll see this tomorrow, is at the cross. When Peter explains the cross to those before him at Pentecost and says, look, you killed him, but it was God's purpose. It was a human desire. It was the purpose of these people to execute Jesus because he was a threat to them, because they uh, felt that he was disrupting their ministry, you name it, all kinds of reasons. Uh, But they, they wanted to do it. 
But at the same time, it was God's purpose. Hugely mysterious. And yet we need both to be true. And in fact, the Bible asserts that both are true. I, I can't promise to explain all of that. I don't understand it fully. Uh, but I need to affirm what the Bible affirms. And the Bible affirms both. Judas wanted to do it, and it was part of God's purpose. And so God used this, but as part of his plan, Judas needs to be replaced. And presumably, the reason is because there is something significant about the fact that there were 12 And what you find in the Gospels is that Jesus was recreating a new Israel. Uh, And basically, as there were 12 tribes in the Old Covenant, so there are 12 disciples in the New. Um, And so uh, what we find at the end of Acts 1 is, is God raising up another person to take the place of Judas so that there was this round number of 12. There's something very significant about that number. So how did they go about choosing one? Who who, who qualified? What were the job requirements? Well, in verse 21, we see that um, basically this person had to have been with Jesus the whole time. Well, that's obvious, isn't it? Because they had to have been taught by him and learned from him and spent time with him. Secondly, in verse 22, they had to have been a resurrection witness. They had to have seen the resurrection. Because after all, they're to be witnesses of what they've seen and therefore tell people about. And then thirdly, they have to be chosen by God. They have to be chosen by, well, Jesus. He chose his apostles, and therefore so should Judas' replacement. Now, of course, it's a bit odd what happens next because they cast lots, and you might think that seems very unspiritual. Um, I don't know if any of you come across the Lego New Testament Um, some of it's pretty cynical um, and the guy who wrote it basically uh, who made it uh, was trying to um, make fun of the Bible but some of them are quite good so here's a little uh, picture from the Lego New Testament that's uh, Matthias being chosen by Lot uh, in Acts 1 now you might think hang on what's all that about Uh, it it seems very sort of strange way of going about things is casting lots something that we should be doing now is this is this a model for choosing leaders basically should the rector of all souls the next one be chosen by lot well it's interesting isn't it you might think no i probably think no but um but here's an interesting verse from proverbs the lot is cast into the lap but it's every decision is from the lord What this assumes is God's sovereignty, that God is in control. And for something as important as this, that they have, um, uh, this is the way to do it. And so Matthias gets chosen to replace Judas. Is everybody happy so far? Good. Um, Now, every now and then, I need to sort of make a little detour digression, because every now and then, some big questions get thrown up by um, the text, 
and I want to tackle them very briefly in passing. The biggest one I'm going to leave to the seminar um, in a few evenings' time on the whole issue of the spirit and gifts and all of that. We'll think about that. I want to deal with that specifically in good time. But, uh, but now there's the question of the apostolic succession. Now, you might think that's a bit of an irrelevancy. Why on earth are we talking about that? Well, actually, depending on your denomination and your churchmanship and background, this actually is quite an important question. Um, and it's a very brief sort of look at it, but um, to put it another way, are there, uh, was there a need always to have 12 apostles, and should there be 12 now? Are there apostles today? Um, um, but if not 12, is there a sense in which the whole uh, apostolic ministry continues in some shape or form today? Well, it's interesting that, depending on your churchmanship, uh, basically a, a huge diversity of churches will take this seriously. So, for instance, the more Roman Catholic uh, views will see apostolic succession as something that happens with bishops and the laying on of hands of bishops. And the theory is that there's been an unbroken stream going all the way back to Acts chapter 1. And uh, it's done through the laying on of hands um, and uh, you remember Paul and Timothy, Paul talks about the laying on of hands on Timothy and how he should lay hands on others as a, as a sign of them becoming recognized. But actually maybe, according to some theologies, that's when the Holy Spirit comes down to anoint someone for a job. That's where the succession happens. And there are certainly Anglo-Catholic uh, people in the Church of England who would have this view of bishops. It's an unbroken chain and depending on how you sort of spin it, going all the way back to Peter himself. But of course, there are also at a completely other end of the spectrum. There's uh, parts of Pentecostalism that sees the role of the apostle as very important today. And the promises of the Spirit to the apostles, for instance, and you can see this in John 14 and John 16. We'll talk about those in a few evenings' time. Uh, but where but the Spirit promises to bring revelation to uh, these people, um, that has become a foundation for understanding what uh, the role of uh, leaders should be, and it should be in apostolic terms. Well, I'm going to give a very brief um, description, uh, analysis of this raises up a whole load of questions, but I felt it was just important just to flag it up, just to show that we're not ducking things. Um, it may be that this is an important issue for you and you can come and chat. But uh, there are a number of interesting things. For instance, when James, the brother of John, dies in Acts 12, uh, we don't have any mention at all of him being replaced. Um, so perhaps, this is certainly my understanding, perhaps the purpose of having 12 has been finished, has been fulfilled, because the foundation stone of the church is there. And you can certainly see this imagery in use, for instance, in the book of Revelation. You have the 24 elders in the, the imagery of Revelation. Remember, the numbers are very significant. The 24 elders, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles. There does seem to be something foundational about this. So it's, and what I think is fascinating also is, you know, we make a big deal of Stephen's martyrdom in Acts 7, as we'll come to. Uh, he wasn't even an apostle. He was a deacon. And yet when James, who was an apostle, the brother of John, in Acts 12 dies, he just merits one verse. 
So it's clearly not part and parcel of Luke's purpose and not that significant in terms of his narrative. Of course, it was significant for those who were there, but it just alerts one to the fact that Luke is doing something slightly different to what we expect. Secondly, an apostle. What is this word apostle? Well, an apostle is literally someone who is sent out. And uh, therefore, it could almost be synonymous with a missionary or a mission partner. And it's interesting, you find that the word in uh, the New Testament, um, apostolos, is used in two different ways. There are the apostles of Jesus, and you remember that Paul had to go to great pains. And you find nearly every letter of Paul is having to demonstrate evidence for his apostleship. Because obviously this was something very rare, and obviously his background was uh, very unusual. And so he will say, for instance, in 1 Corinthians, I was one abnormally born. In other words, I'm not normal in how I became an apostle. Um, But you see, also you find other people are called apostles that you've never heard of. Um, And you find these two uh, in Romans 16, Andronicus and Junius, a man and wife, who are both called apostles. And yet what seems to be going on here is that the word apostle is being used in a looser sense when someone is sent out from a church. And the best evidence for that is Epaphroditus and Philippians. So Paul describes Epaphroditus as the Philippians apostle. He's sent out from Philippi. So Paula is an all-souls apostle sent out to uh, Central Asia. So there seem to be these two senses, and I think the the secondary sense doesn't have the weight of the primary, which is that they're sent from Jesus. I think that helps to explain why this language is used. And if you want to call our mission partners apostles, fine, but I just think it's probably slightly unhelpful because it's confusing. And people might assume all kinds of things about them that actually are not that necessarily helpful. And that is one of the reasons why, for instance, in much Protestant thinking, going all the way back to the fathers, that a lot of uh, people will maintain that there is an apostolic succession if and only if people are faithful to the apostles' teaching. And so we, we are successors of the apostles if we teach what the apostles taught. And that there is a ministry of teaching what the apostles taught and passing it on. And that that is the sort of gift that Paul tells Timothy to fan into flame and so on. And that actually if what we are doing this week is faithful to Luke's uh, uh, book of Acts and what Paul, for instance, teaches, then I would say we are in the apostolic succession and we don't need an institution or uh, apostles in the same way today. Well... That's a big issue. I'm going to just sort of duck and dive and move straight on. Uh, But if you have questions about that, please feel free to come and grab me and talk about it. Uh, Incidentally, we do have a question panel uh, on the last night to bring any questions uh, from the week, uh, from seminars and sessions or just conversations. Uh, That'll be an opportunity then. Okay, well, let's get back to the story and uh, move quite quickly now. Um, what were these first Christians to do? They're to be witnesses, but what's meant to happen? Well, verse uh, 8 of chapter 1 is key. The kingdom ripples out. You will, see, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem 
and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I've got a groovy graphic now. Get this. Do you like that? Well, I did anyway. Um, Basically, what you have is a stone dropped into the pond in Jerusalem. And it ripples out in concentric circles in every direction. Now, the important thing to realize is that Luke doesn't tell us about what happens at each point of the compass. Okay? It's not the acts of every apostle, and it's not what happened to plant churches anywhere and everywhere. No, actually what he's doing is he's tracing a few, well, perhaps actually in the end, only two trajectories of the gospel through just a handful of people, well, ultimately through one person, Paul. Because basically what Luke understands is that Paul, his conversion and ministry were integral to the gospel going to the world. Now, he assumes, and we know that other people took the gospel to non-Jews, Philip being an obvious person. But we assume that all kinds of other people, and there are all kinds of legends about, you know, for instance, the thought that uh, Thomas took the gospel to India and all kinds of other things, and who knows what, lost in the mists of time. Luke doesn't tell us about those things. But we're to assume that it is going out in every direction, and we'll see this. We'll see pointers to this fact. Uh, But Luke is showing us how the gospel, and this is the crucial thing, jumped the boundaries at each point. And so if verse 8, we're right to see this as significant, and pretty much every commentator on Acts does, then actually what you find is that the book of Acts can be structured around that verse. So we start with Jesus' resurrection. We start in Jerusalem and Pentecost, and then it ripples out first to Judea, often because many people in the surrounding countryside come into Jerusalem to find out more about what's going on, but also because people are going to the surrounding villages. And then in Acts 8, you have something momentous and very, very strange, and when we get to it, we will see how strange it is what happens in in Samaria. Very odd indeed. You have this weird double conversion. You remember people get baptized but somehow don't have the Holy Spirit yet. It's all very odd. And Peter and and a few others have to come up from Jerusalem. Why? To check that the gospel really has gone into Samaria. Because, of course, as we know, the Samaritans were the arch enemies. The hated half-breeds. And then after it does that, we find very soon the gospel going into the Gentile world. What story immediately follows from uh, the uh, Samaritan conversions? Well, it's the Ethiopian eunuch. And then, more significantly, you have the whole narrative with Peter and Cornelius, the centurion. Now, we don't know much about uh, the Ethiopian eunuch. Maybe he was a God-fearer. In other words, a Gentile proselyte who had um, come to a sort of Uh, sort of alien Jewish faith. Who knows? We don't really know. But the important thing is that when we get to Cornelius, we really are in fresh pagan territory. 
And Peter has to have some pretty important lessons to learn then. And then, as soon as the whole Cornelius thing happens, you find the Council of Jerusalem happens after that, which is the big debate about what we do with these Gentiles who are getting converted. How do we deal with them? Do they have to be circumcised? Do they have to eat special food? Do they have to do this, that, and the other? Because obviously that is a big question, isn't it? What do we do with them? After centuries of tradition, more than that, of divine revelation, saying you've got to be separate, now suddenly we find uh, Gentiles in their hundreds getting converted. So what on earth do we do with them? That big debate in Acts 15 in the Council of Jerusalem was fundamental to world mission. If that had not happened, there is no way, humanly speaking, that this would have become the global entity that it is. Because it was fundamental to what you do with Gentiles when they get converted. And because there are more Gentiles than Jews in the world's population, that's going to have a pretty massive effect, isn't it? But the climax after Paul's second and third missionary journeys is that he gets arrested. (laughs) And it's almost as if he does it deliberately. (laughs) Well, he does. There are various opportunities he has to walk away, but he sees this as his ticket to Rome. Why? Because if you get the gospel to Rome, think of the ripples from there. It's one thing to drop a stone in the pond at Jerusalem, but to drop it at Rome, because, of course, all roads lead to Rome. It is the hub of the empire. You get it to the whole of the known world and beyond, because there are enough uh, little empires and kingdoms on the borders that had relations with Rome and had embassies in Rome. Who knows what would happen? Could that be why uh, Luke ends his book with Paul preaching the kingdom in Acts 28 in Rome? Job done how the gospel went global. Now, do you see that I think this becomes the sort of filter by which Luke decides what to include in his story? The fascinating thing is, when you put the structure of Luke side by side with the structure of Acts, you find something quite interesting. It's a mirror image, which implies yet again that Luke knew exactly what he was doing in structuring his books and seeing that geography is the heart of the narrative. Do you see? It is about a journey. We're in the Roman world. Jesus lives and is brought up in Galilee. Why were people so suspicious of him living up there? Well, because that was a Gentile area. It was very mixed. You couldn't really be pure if you lived up there. And you find Jesus preaching in Galilee and the Decapolis on the other side of the River Jordan, which, is where, which was a Gentile area as well. But gradually he's making his way towards Jerusalem where he will die. But isn't it interesting, and this is one of the sort of slight mysteries of Acts, is that in the book of Acts you hardly get a sermon about the cross. I wonder if you've ever noticed that before. I mean, we talk so much about how the cross is central to our faith, don't we? And yet, if you do an analysis of all the different sermons you get recorded in Acts, and remember, they're just bullet points. I mean, you know, if you, took, if you read Paul's sermon out in Acts 17 to the Athenians, it would take about five minutes. I think he would have used up a bit more time 
uh, and uh, made most of the opportunities he had on the Areopagus. Uh, but basically, they're just bullet points. But Luke doesn't talk about the cross very much. What does he focus on? The resurrection and the ascension. And you can see that as the hinge between his two books. Because why does he repeat it? If we're meant to read both books together as one, why does he describe the, ascension, the resurrection and ascension twice? Well, it's because it's central. Because it proclaims that Jesus is Lord. He's the king. He's the one who gives authority for this momentum for the mission to the world. You only go to the whole world if you believe that Jesus is the king of it. Otherwise, you just keep it to yourself. He's just my king. No, but you see, that's the shocking thing about the gospel. The arrogant, the outrageous, the non-politically correct claim at the heart of Christianity is that we proclaim your king who's my king as well, but he's your king. How do we know? Well, because he rose from the dead. By the resurrection, Paul says to the Athenians in Acts 17, we now know that Jesus is the judge. He has authority over you all. The ascension lies at the heart of understanding that because he's there and he's coming back. Do you remember what the angel said to the disciples? Why are you looking up into the heavens? Why are you looking up into the sky? He'll come back. Get on with the job. And so the big journey is getting to Rome. And you find Paul saying this quite explicitly in, in Acts 19. He says he decided to go back to Jerusalem after one of his trips. He says, we've got to go through Macedonia, which is northern Greece, and then to Achaia. After I've been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. So just as for Jesus' life in the gospel, Jerusalem was the sort of the the cloud overshadowing everything. If you like, for Paul, Rome was the goal. You see, geography is very important. And what are they doing? Well, they're witnessing about the kingdom. Witnessing about the kingdom. And uh, in the uh, no, uh, diagrams booklet, you'll find a number of um, uh, diagrams there at the early uh, stages, which uh, just list all the verses where, um, first of all, you find the kingdom being talked about. In Acts 1, you find you know, Jesus teaching about the kingdom of God. I can't remember what page it's on in this. Um, page 4. Uh, page 4. Five. My witnesses witnessing about the kingdom. So you find that the disciples confused about the kingdom. Jesus teaches them about it. But notice when Philip preaches to the Samaritans in Acts 8, he preaches the good news of the kingdom and the name of Jesus Christ. In other words, he says to them, these Samaritans, there is a kingdom and you do have a king and his name is Jesus. That's what Jesus Christ means. It means King Jesus. There's a kingdom with a king. He's your king. And you find, uh, uh, again, Paul later on speaking much of the kingdom. And the climax, and we'll see this on the last morning in chapter 28, boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. There he is in Rome. That's what he's doing. So he's saying that in Rome, there may well be a Caesar on the throne, but actually over the whole world, 
there is a king. And what do witnesses do? Well, they speak. And so you'll see if you just turn over the page in, the, in, in there on page six, the word goes out, and it's fascinating. Uh, you can sort of trace a trajectory of numbers as the numbers grow. But it's interesting how Luke describes the numbers growing. So um, in, after the Pentecost, 3,000 accepted the message and were baptized. And then the Lord added, number, uh, added to their number daily. In six, chapter six, the word spread. That's what spreads. It's the word that spreads. And the disciples increased, including many priests in the temple, something we forget. Verse uh, chapter 12, the word of God increased and spread. Chapter 19, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Do you see the point? That basically, it's as much about the message growing as it is about numbers growing. In other words, it's the message of the kingdom that more people are finding, about, finding out about the king, but also submitting to the king. And when they do that, the word spreads. And so as we go through in the days to come, and I'm going to shut up now, but there are a few themes to look out for. Look out for, maybe if you want to just read through the book of Acts on your own, if you had a spare uh, half hour or so, uh, just start reading through it, just as you would any book. Why not? Just look out for the themes of the kingdom and witnesses of the kingdom and the word and the spirit and his power and see what they get up to. And you'll find a number of themes that get repeated through the book. But I think that's quite enough for now. You've been very patient. Thank you. Um, what we have now is the chance just to talk about things a bit in small groups and maybe just to get to know other people a bit better um, you'll find on the back page of the, um, the black and white one some discussion questions and basically I've tried to keep it very simple and um, just, just things just to sort of throw out um, and get people thinking. I don't mind too much what you talk about, as, those, as long as it's vaguely related to Acts, I suppose. It might be helpful. Um, and basically, it's, it's going to be sort of fairly informal. We can go anywhere around the site if you want to go outside and enjoy the sun while it's here. That would be great. But I've asked a, a number of people to, to lead groups. I'm sorry it's been so last minute, but it's been last minute. Um, and I would ask those who've agreed to do that, if you could stand um, near the front, and then if people could just sort of gravitate towards a group and then go off um, until uh, we break. The, just to say that the crash is carrying on during the groups um, so that you can uh, enjoy that and, and uh, not worry too much. Although with Rico, no, no, I don't. <laughs> uh, um, no, they're, they're doing a grand job down there. Um, and then uh, there'll be coffee and tea, and then you can follow the program for the rest of the day. But shall I pray before we sort of head off? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your sovereign purposes. We thank you that you are good and that you're in control and that your purposes lead to your word going out over the world. We pray that you'd help us to understand more of that, help us see the goodness of that, and help us to live in the light of that for your glory's sake. Amen. Okay, well...
the probably sort of eight or nine in each group, something like that. So if, if leaders could come and sort of, I know it's a sort of tricky way of doing this, but I couldn't think of a better way of doing it. Um, so come and stand near the front and then people will gravitate towards you and then go off anywhere you like. Thank you very much indeed.